Go and find Luke 19 with me. Luke 19. To begin by welcoming you here this morning, it's good to see you. And to issue an invitation this evening at 5. Uh, this evening I'm going to be talking about uh, what are widely considered, I think, two of the most uh, difficult and puzzling parables Jesus ever told. Uh, parables that uh, preachers tend to shy away from, not the prodigal son, but the other ones. Uh, but I want to hit those head on and see what it is Jesus has to say, say to us in some puzzling parables. This morning let's start in Luke 19 and verse 45. Luke 19 and verse 45. <clears throat> and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of, of, uh, of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Chapter 20 and verse 1 says, One day as Jesus was teaching, teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus riding into Jerusalem, being hailed as king, a week before his crucifixion. Luke 19.28 tells the Luke account of it. In every one of those accounts, we see that almost immediately, as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem, this man who was hailed as king soon goes to the temple. And what he does at the temple is, in all the accounts, seems so odd and so strange. Here you have Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, literally whipping people. If you put all the gospel accounts of this event together, you get quite a bit of detail about this event. He made a whip out of cords. He then wields that against people. He throws over the money changers' tables. He throws over the animal sellers' tables. He raises his voice. Here's the same Jesus who said, Come unto me, all you who are labor labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The same Jesus who said, I am meek and lowly in heart. Here that same Jesus is, terrible in his wrath, Thunder in his voice and fire in his eyes. This is what happens when God visits his own temple and doesn't like what he finds there. It's the only recorded act of violence done by Jesus, if we could call it that. Why does he do this? This morning I just want to spend our time unpacking this act and unpacking this text. I think the short answer is this. Jesus doesn't just enter Jerusalem declaring himself king. He comes to the temple declaring himself king. Essentially, that's what he's doing in this act. He's declaring himself king. But this is such a violent act, a a radical act, an unusual act from what we generally understand Jesus to be about. What does it mean? So in our study this morning, I just have two simple questions. Number one, I want to ask, what does the temple mean? And number two, I want to ask, what does the cleansing of the temple mean? Before we think about what the cleansing of the temple means, we have to understand, first of all, what the temple itself means. So briefly, let's do a quick quick survey of what it is the temple is all about. What does the temple mean? The temple, of course, does not exist today. Uh, There's a few ruins that do, and that's it. 
It was destroyed many years ago. But when we hear about the temple, I'm afraid that what we think of is basically a cathedral. So a cathedral is just sort of a bigger, more ornate version of a church building. Um, Nothing really happens in a Catholic cathedral, as I understand it, that doesn't happen in a Catholic church. A cathedral is just a bigger, more ornate church building. I I think it's possible to project that onto the temple and think the temple is just basically a great big synagogue. Um, But it's not. It's not just a place where they held services and they read scripture and they sang just like a synagogue. That's not what a temple is about. We're going to see in a minute the reason they have money changers and animal sellers there was because the Jews, no matter where they were, had to come back to the temple. It didn't matter how far away you lived. If you were a Jew, you had to come to the temple at some point, at some point because about two things happened there that happened nowhere else in the world and could happen nowhere else in the world, not even in the synagogue. First of all, the temple was the place where you could actually meet God face to face. The temple was where you encountered God. That's the reason why when they were exiled from the temple, the psalmist says, Oh, how I want to come see you, see your face, see you face to face. I want to come to your sanctuary. I want to behold your holiness and so on. What he's pining for is for the, to, to go to the temple. He is lamenting being separated from the temple which meant separated from God's presence. Now, someone says, I thought God was omnipresent. I thought God was present everywhere. And of course, yes, he is. Only you miss the richness of the temple if that's all you have to say about God's presence. If all you have to say about God's presence is it's everywhere, then you'll have no idea what the temple is. Let me give you a a very dim analogy um, about this. This is giving analogies about God and uh, and his nature are always are always um, fraught with with issues, but let me just attempt one. When he was alive, Henry Ford was a tremendous presence all throughout America. He had a tremendous impact on American society in every way. He was famous. Everyone knew who he was and what he looked like. They'd seen his picture. They'd read about what he'd done. But not only that, on every street in America, you saw his handiwork, all of which praised the ingenuity of, of their maker. But everyone also knew if you wanted to have a personal relationship with Henry Ford, you had to go to the place where his face was. You had to go where his presence dwelt. That was the only place at his face, in his presence, that you could truly meet him. In a similar way, the Bible tells us that all human beings have a strong sense of God in their hearts and in in their consciences. You know, even an avowed atheist can find himself crying out to God. As the saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. We all have a sense, a sense of him. Of course, we can see his handiwork everywhere. Every place you look in the world and in nature, you see him. God is everywhere present in, in, in several senses. But the claim of the Torah, the claim of the Old Testament, was that it was at the temple where his special royal presence dwelt. That was the place where God's space and man's space overlapped. That was the place where heaven and earth overlapped and interlocked mysteriously. To go to the temple was to approach God's presence and his glory, which dwelt most especially in the Holy of Holies. The temple was a unique and special place where a worshiper could seek the very face of God and personally visit his presence. Now, of course, there were limits Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and only once a year at that. There was always a veil between you and God's presence, but you got as near as you could 
whenever you went to the temple. So the temple is all about this. It's the place where you met God. The other special and unique thing about the temple is it's the place for sacrifice. This is the reason the animals are being sold in, uh, in the account here in, in the Gospels. It was the place where sacrifices for sin were made, where sacrifices were made so you could approach God's face. The temple really represents the truth that you can't just approach God any old way. You can't just waltz in and say, hey God, what's up? It's a place of meeting. But if you wanted to meet with him, there had to be a sacrifice. Now, Someone says, now why in the world is that? Why, why do you have to make a sacrifice in order to visit God? It makes God sound kind of cranky in particular. Or you say, that's kind of a primitive view of God. You have to pay for your sins before he'll talk to you? What kind of God is that? You know, I believe in a God of love, and that doesn't sound like a God of love who's demanding that you kill animals before you can come visit him. Let me give you an image that's, that's really right out of the Old Testament. It's, it's, I'm going to slightly modernize it, but I'm going to work with an image that God uses to describe his relationship to sinful Israel. So let's say you, you adopted a child, uh, an orphan, someone who is without hope and would be, would be in, in a desperate situation without you. You adopt them and you raise them up as your own. It's a lot of work to raise a child. It's expensive. But you put your whole life into the child, and by the time they turn 18, you send them off to college, you've saved up money for them, and you've just given them everything you could possibly give them. And so they leave. But they never show up to college. Somehow they manage to draw all of your money out of the bank. You discover over the next few months they've gone off to live in another city, living the high life, living irresponsibly on luxuries and squandering all of your money. What would happen if, if a year or so later they showed up at your house and just sat down and started chatting? And they said, hey, it's been a while. What's going on? As if none of that had happened. What would you say? You would say, whoa, wait a minute. You can't start talking as if nothing is wrong, as if nothing happened. What about what you've done? You've got to talk to me about that. You've got to deal with this breach in our relationship, with the betrayal, with the injustice. And what if the child had responded by saying, well, you're a little cranky, aren't you? Don't you love me? I thought you were a father of love. I thought you were a mother of love. You'd say, no, that's not what it's about. I'm not being cranky. In fact, I do love you. I still love you, which is why I'm so upset with you. We have to do something about the breach. You can't just come in here any old way. You can't just approach me casually. Something has to be done if you want to come into my presence. The Bible says that is our situation. We have a creator to whom we owe every grain of our strength, every molecule of our abilities and talents and money, everything we have. Do you honor God that way? the God who has adopted you and rescued you and saved you, do you honor him for all that he's done? Do you treat him as if you owe him everything? Do you treat him with the gratitude he deserves? And the answer, if we're honest, is always no. We have not done that. We have not honored him as much as he deserves. We act like all the stuff he gave us is ours to do anything we want with. We've used our money and our talents and our time and our intellect and our energy to do the things that we wanted and at the same time dishonor the one who gave them to us. So as a result, every time you decide, I want to go in and meet with God, that issue has got to come up first. 
We don't just turn up and say, hey, God, what's going on? We don't say, hey, God, why are you so cranky? We have to answer the question, what about the breach? What about the ingratitude? What about the sin? The temple was the place where you could approach God. But if you were going to approach God, having breached the relationship with God, that has to be addressed first. Atoning sacrifice, the shedding of blood, was how sinful man could be made fit to approach God's face again. That's essentially the logic of the sacrificial system. Now, that system, that sacrificial system, that's a good thing, and it's, it's not a good thing in some ways. What I'm going to do now is just basically summarize big swaths of, of the book of Hebrews. On the one hand, the sacrificial system was a good thing. Of course it was. It was God's idea. It was good because it showed people you couldn't just approach God any old way. It showed people God was holy. It showed people sin was serious and had to be dealt with. It also showed people God was willing to provide a way to deal with sin. He didn't just cut off his rebellious children. He made a way back to, back to himself to heal the breach. In his mercy, he made a way for that to happen. But Hebrews also tells us that system, as, as good as it was, it's also incomplete. It was provisional. And it was never completely effective. First of all, Hebrews says, it had to be repeated. You had to keep killing animals over and over and over again as you kept sinning. You had to keep sprinkling that blood over and over and over again. Hebrews 10 says part of the problem was also this. You could never get a completely clear conscience that way. Because every time you did it, every time you went and had to make the sacrifices, it reminded you essentially of what a terrible sinner you were. It was a system that kept you immersed in your guilt. So the temple was a place of meeting God, and it was a place for the sacrifice for, sacrifice for sin. And then one day Jesus shows up, and he comes in that temple... And he begins to act like he owns the place. He starts telling people, this is my house. And I want my house to be a place where you really pray. Not a place of sacrificial ritual, going through all the rigmarole, but a place where you pray and you really meet God. Things are about to change. So with a brief survey of what the temple is about, let's begin to think about what the cleansing of the temple might mean. Number one. I think Jesus' cleansing of the temple tells us that he demands spiritual authenticity. Jesus demands spiritual authenticity. Look back in Luke 19 and verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So the first thing is Jesus is upset, basically, because people are not really praying. People are going to the temple, but they are not really meeting or encountering God. They're not honoring the entire purpose of the temple in the first place. And what's disrupting that are those sellers. Now, who are they? Well, because the Jews came from all over the world to make their sacrifice, they typically didn't bring their own animal to do that. If you're coming from a long distance, you can't bring an animal on a boat very easily, say. If you tried, the animal might die or the animal might get sick or get injured. And remember, it's important for that animal to be, to be without blemish, to be, to be perfect. And so because the Jews were scattered and had to come back to the temple to make the sacrifice, there was a very large and lucrative business that grew up around the temple of selling animals. And then there's also the fact that because the Jews are coming from all over with all different currencies and because the, uh, the tributes and things paid in the temple were to be paid in Jewish currency, in the shekel, 
There was a need for currency exchange there as well. Now, as far as I can tell, and I can't find anyone who thinks this is the problem, the problem isn't just simply selling livestock or exchanging coins. That's not the problem per se. The main problem seems to be where that's happening. Jesus entered the temple, it says, and then having entered the temple, he encounters them and then drives them out. Mark's account is even more specific, that they're camped out in the court of the Gentiles. They were in a place where there should have been prayer going on. But I want you to imagine going to a busy open-air market, going to a livestock auction, where people are haggling over prices or an auctioneer is talking a mile a minute, Let's get that scene in here, in this building, and then let's have a worship service. The only kind of worship you're going to be able to do is to buy a sheep, offer a sacrifice, go through the ritual, and then get out. What Jesus is saying, first of all, is this. I want spiritual authenticity. I don't want formal worship where you just go through the ritual. I want you to really pray when you come to the temple. I want you to know God. I don't just want you to act out worship, to pantomime worship. I don't just want you to involve your hands and your feet. Real worship envelops the whole person. What I want is real spirituality. What I want is real worship. What I want is real prayer. What I want is real communion with God. And I think this is very searching. It asks us the question, what is your idea of worship? And what is your approach to worship? What's your idea of drawing near to God? Is it empty or is it full? Is it mechanical or is it conscious? Is it thoughtless or is it thoughtful? Is your life like this temple? Unbelievably full of busyness, even religious busyness, but no real prayer. No real connection to God. A lot of noise and a lot of activity, but not a lot of real face time with God. When it gets, gets down to it, what is your connection to the living God? In real life, what is your connection to the living God? Let's get a little, more, a little more specific. What do you do with worry? What do you do with worry? Do you deal with worry primarily by working? Do you deal with worry by jogging? Do you deal with worry by getting someone on the phone and talking the ear off about it? Do you just try to forget about it? Do you try to anesthetize yourself with distraction? To fill it up with food or with drink or something else? Or do you pray? Do you make a connection with the living God so that thoughts of his love and care and power get so big and bright that in the light of that, your worry begins to fade? What do you do with worry? Is there spiritual authenticity in your worship? What do you do when you feel guilty? Do you rationalize your guilt? Do you blame other people? Do you try to win the sympathy of other people so that they'll just tell you, they're there, it's okay, you're only human? Or do you pray? Do you pray until you have encountered the real God who shines his light of mercy on our guilt? See, Jesus cleanses the temple because he demands that our spiritual lives not be characterized by chaotic activity and religious busyness, but by a real encounter with the living God. Jesus demands spiritual authenticity. That's what happens here in the temple. Real worship and real prayer. Number two, Jesus cleansing the temple means that Jesus demands all authority. I believe the cleansing of the temple is, is one of the big declarations of Jesus' complete and total authority. What he is really saying in this act is, I am God. 
Now, it's funny, occasionally you run into people who will say, you know, is there any place where Jesus actually claims to be God? Where he says those words, I, Jesus, am God. Where he just comes right out and say it. And the answer is, yeah, just about on every page of the Gospels. He shows up here at the temple and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. He calls it my house. And then he starts rearranging the furniture. The only person who can rearrange the furniture is the person who owns the house. He comes in and he acts like he owns the place because, in fact, he does. I want you to notice what he's just said of Jerusalem. This is uh, Luke 19 and verse 44. Luke 19 and verse 44, and he says, I will tear you down to the ground of Jerusalem, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He says of Jerusalem, because you didn't recognize your own Messiah's visitation, I will act in judgment. Jesus walks around Jerusalem, and then he walks around temple like he owns the place. If Jesus is God and if Jesus is king, then he gets to say what should and should not happen anywhere he is king. And if somewhere is not treating him like he is king when he in fact is, he's got something to say about that, whether that's Jerusalem or whether that's the temple. And I want you to realize this is also true of us. What's true of Jerusalem, what's true of the temple is also true of us. If he is our king, he has a right to rearrange the furniture. When he entered Jerusalem, you remember the scene when he enters Jerusalem on the donkey, he says, they're saying, Hosanna. They say, come in, O blessed king. You know what a Christian is? A Christian is simply someone who has declared Jesus to be those things. A Christian is just someone who has cried out to Jesus, Hosanna, which means Lord save. If you've cried out to Jesus to save you, if you've called him your Lord and king, then that means he gets to rearrange the furniture in your heart and in your life. We don't get to say, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe it's up to me to decide what's right and wrong for my life. We don't get to say, I believe in Jesus, but it's my life and my choice. When the real Jesus shows up, he doesn't sit down and say, you know, let's have a seminar. What do you think would be a good use of your gifts? I'd like to hear from you. Jesus doesn't consult us and say, do you think it'd be a good idea to lie here or not? Do you think it's okay to sleep with this person or not? He doesn't consult with us. Would this make sense to you? That's not the way a king works. He says, I'm the king and I created you. And then he begins to rearrange the furniture the way he wants. He begins to move around our priorities. And he calls out the sinful attitudes that shouldn't be there. And he has a right to change our habits and to instruct our affections and our desires, what we love and what we want. If you have a God who never challenges you, if you have a God who never convicts you of sin, if you have a God who doesn't have a hard edge to his will, If you have a God who just lets you do what you want, if your God always agrees with you and shares all of your opinions, you have an imaginary God, not the real one. When Jesus comes to the temple and he starts rearranging the furniture, he is claiming that he gets to say what happens there. This isn't your temple, it's mine. And this isn't your city, he just said, it's mine. And this isn't your world or your life, those are mine too. When Jesus cleanses the temple, he is making a claim to absolute authority over that place and over everyone in it. And finally, at number three, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he is declaring himself the final temple. 
The temple was a good thing. The, the temple was a wonderful thing. But the temple was also a provisional thing, a temporary thing. Part of Jesus' mission was to replace it. I want you to look again in chapter 20 and verses 1 and 2. In the aftermath of this event, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, that temple that he had just cleansed, and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. So after he had cleansed the temple, they come up to him and they say, Who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to do this? In the temple cleansing story in in John 2, Jesus challenges the people who ask him this question by challenging them back. By what authority to do this? Who do you think you are? And this is what he tells them. He says, tear the temple down. He challenges them. Go ahead, tear the temple down. And here's my proof. In three days, I'll raise it up again after you tear it down. Then I'll show you by what authority I have. That's my paraphrase of John 2.19. They don't get what he's talking about there. But we do. He was talking about himself. He was saying, I am the real temple of which this temple is only a foreshadowing. What he says is, my authority comes from the fact that I am the substance of which this building is only a shadow. Now what does that mean? Remember, the temple is the place where you can meet God face to face. And the temple is the place of sacrifice. And so what Jesus is saying when he claims to be the new and true temple is, first of all, I am God. And yes, you can get a sense of God by looking at the mountains or the ocean, but now I am here and you can see me face to face. You can see me personally. I am God come in person. I am the way to meet God. And it turns out I am also the way, the place of sacrifice. The reason he tells the twelve not to weep over the coming destruction of the temple was because its permanent replacement was standing right in front of them. Because now you meet God face to face in the person of Jesus. Because now the breach healing sacrifices aren't the day after day slaughterings of sheep and goats that serve as a permanent reminder of your guilt. Now the once for all sacrifice of Jesus serves as the permanent reminder of God's love and God's mercy. It's one thing to believe in Jesus in a general way. It's one thing to say Jesus is a nice guy. Jesus is a great person. It's one thing to say even I believe he's the son of God and I'll try to do some stuff he said. It's one thing to say I'll be baptized so I can be saved. But it's a whole other thing to see him as the final temple. The one who came to replace the temple. The one who said through me and only through me can you have spiritual authenticity. Through me and only through me will your whole life be rearranged and changed the way it's supposed to be. And because through me and only through me you can enter the presence of God because I am the sacrifice that heals the breach between you and God. So when you shout out to Jesus, Hosanna, when you say, Lord, save me. Lord, I want the blessings that you have. I want the salvation that you offer. And when you call him big titles like Jesus Christ and God in the flesh and King, You know what you're really saying to him? You are saying to him, you are in charge, and you have the authority, and you are allowed to walk around my life and rearrange the furniture. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only suitable sacrifice that can save. He is the spiritual reality we pursue with all of our hearts. That's who he is. The question is, is he that to you? Jesus is the true and new temple. The question is, is he that to you? 
If he is the temple, are you pilgrimaging him? Pilgriming, pilgriming toward him? Is he the temple to you? When Jesus shows up at the temple, he says, here is who I am, the new and true temple. If you want to come and to visit God, to come into his presence, you need Jesus, the sacrifice for your sin and the place that unites you and God and heals the breach caused by your sin. If you need to come and heal that breach and appeal to Jesus, the new and true temple, come forward now as we stand and sing. Have you been to Jesus?